Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast with your host, Ken Castrico. Please hit that follow button so that you will not miss another episode. Every episode, we interview an ordinary but extraordinary person on their identity journey. An identity journey is your unique journey that you have taken in your life to get to where you are now. That journey is not only fascinating, but inspiring and encouraging to others because others can relate to your struggles and victories, which can give them hope and help them get unstuck. Ultimately, my goal is to empower people to not only understand, but truly embrace their true selves, unlocking their full potential and living a more authentic and fulfilling life. Knowing who you are can change the way you see the world and others around you. And when you know who you are, you are powerful. Today, my guest is Andy Pasternak. I met Andy through the Silver State Striders Riding Club. I got to really know him and his wife, Joanne, at the Tahoe Rim Trail Endurance Runs. We have been working at the Tunnel Creek Aid Station at the TRT for the last 10 plus years together. We got to know each other on a personal and professional basis when my friend Andy, also known as Dr. Pasternak, became my family doctor. And after I had a nearly fatal pulmonary embolism in 2016, I was a mess after that incident, and Dr. Andy helped me with crippling anxiety and was instrumental in getting me back to exercising, running, and believing that I wasn't broken. He is an amazing example of someone who serves his community and friends selflessly. Dr. Pasternak graduated from the University of Michigan Interflex program in 1993. After graduation, he moved to Madison, Wisconsin for his family medicine residency, followed by a primary care research fellowship at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He moved to Reno in 1998 and started Silver Sage Center for Family Medicine in 2005. Along with providing care for people in Northern Nevada, Silver Sage has donated over $200,000 to area environmental groups since January 2007 through its membership in 1% for the Planet program. Dr. Pasternak is a community clinical professor at the University of Nevada Reno School of Medicine and research director for the Sports Medicine Fellowship. He is the medical director for the Tahoe Rim Trail Endurance Races and the Western States 100. Since 2012, he has been a board member of Access to Healthcare, a local nonprofit in Nevada that improves the health and well-being of individuals in our community by providing and expanding access to services that address the clinical and social determinants of health. Starting in 2022, he was named as the associate editor for the Annals of Family Medicine. Finally, he was proud to serve as the 117th president of the Nevada State Medical Association. In his free time, he enjoys trail running, bicycling, cross-country skiing, and traveling with his lovely and talented wife, Dr. Joanne Alero. He also plays tuba in the Reno Schnitzel's Oompa Band, Jaboom Street Marching Band, and Truckee Tahoe Community Band. Please help me welcome my friend, Dr. Andy Pashnick. So Thank you so much, Andy, for being here. Great to be here, Ken. Yeah, and Andy and I know each other from Running Club, yep. State Striders, and we are, what do we call it, we're partners in crime, and 
in several aid station, whatever you would call it, shenanigans. Lots of shenanigans. Lots yes. of shenanigans. Yes, I can think of many of <laughs> <laughs> So, basically, what we want to do today is we want to do we want to see what your identity journey is. And so to do that, like I've done with all the other ones, we start at the very beginning. All right. And very so. beginning. So I grew up, I was born in Detroit, Michigan. Mm-hmm. My dad is a ch- or was a child psychiatrist. My mom was a fourth grade teacher. Well, she was a teacher at that time. She wasn't teaching fourth grade. But I was born in Detroit. When I was very young, we moved to Camp Pendleton. My dad served it as a physician at the Marine base down at Camp Pendleton for two years. I vaguely remember any of that. Uh, <laughs> How old were you in that? Uh, I was like about a year and a half when we moved out wow. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you vaguely remember? Well, I mean, I don't know how much of I actually remember versus you see photos yeah. and it sort of, you know, triggers yeah. some of those memories. But I was the, I'm the oldest of three kids. I was actually the first grandkid on both sides of the family. So really? I, got, I got a lot of attention. Yeah. My, my nickname was Chief when I was a young kid <laughs> because I kind of ruled the roost. So, and then we moved back to the suburban Detroit, Sterling Heights, when I was a kid. Grew up in Sterling Heights. And then fourth grade, we uh, moved out to Rochester Hills, which I kind of consider that's where I sort of had my formative years of, you know, the end of elementary school and junior high and high school. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. And so back in, <clears throat> so grade school, that kind of stuff, what did you do? What did you do for fun back then? What was your what was your bent? Where did you like to go yeah, to? Yeah, you know, I grew up playing. My, my dad was a big, my dad really enjoyed tennis, and he got my brother and I playing tennis mm. when we were younger. Played a little bit of soccer, did a little bit of track. But for me, the thing that really kind of kicked in for me, especially once I hit uh, junior high and high school, is music. I started out playing trombone when I was in elementary school. I got to junior high, and I realized there was a bunch of trombone players, and they they needed a tuba player. So I'm like, great, I don't have to compete against anybody. I'm going to tuba. So my band director then, Mr. Toma, had me learn tuba, and then got to high school. Our high school was a three-year high school in 10th grade, and played tuba throughout high school. And that was, for me, music was kind of my, that was that was my group. That's who I hung out with. That's who you hung yeah. out with. Yeah. So, so besides they needed a tuba player, yeah. did you like it? Yeah, I did. I think I liked it because, you know, A, it was something I could just work on my own. You know, once I did get to high school, there were some other tuba players. So there was some camaraderie there. And, you know, it, it was sort of fun. I mean, I still... It was sort of fun being the, the foundation of, of the band. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it was always fun playing tuba. It's always kind of, as instruments go, it's a little goofy. You always get a lot of attention playing the tuba when you're marching in parades and you're carrying your big sousaphone. So that was, yeah, it was it was always fun to do. And um, it, and I think, like I said, it was sort of my, that was sort of the, the kids I hung out with. Right. And that's where my, my identity, a lot of that came from. Really? Yeah. Playing yeah. that. I, I was a tuba player. Very short-lived, Lived. Okay. yeah, because they told me, you should be a tuba player. <laughs> that was it. Yep. And uh, didn't go. my career didn't go very far as a, as a junior high If you high ever want to try again, I got a bunch of tubas okay. that you could try. <laughs> yeah, yep. I got moved around quite a bit. Yeah. So when you were, so after obviously being a tuba, did you do a marching band and that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I did, I did marching band. I did, played in wind ensemble. And I would say for myself, you know, probably one of the more formative things I did was when I was in marching band, like I said, we had a three-year high school. After our sophomore year, you would then 
you know, we had a drum major and a junior drum major. So it was sort of, you know, your junior year, you'd be the junior drum major. So after my sophomore year, I, I put in to be junior drum major and I got that. And I think, you know, it's it's been kind of fun talking to my parents over the last couple of years of sophomore year of high school. I was not the most serious student. I was, you know, I was hanging out with a lot of older kids goofing around a little too much, maybe skipping my, some of my gym <laughs> classes a little too much. But with, with being drum major, they sent us to a, it was a drum major camp with this guy, George Parks, who was, had done a bunch of stuff in drum corps and, and, and ran a university marching band program. And it was not just about how to be a drum major, but it was about leadership. And I think, you know, my parents really noticed a change in me after I came back from that and took on that leadership role of, I started to take things a little bit more. I mean, I still had fun, but started to take things a little bit more seriously and started to, yeah. But my parents did not have to get after me as much after that. <laughs> Let's just say that. So yeah. it got you in line? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what did you guys do back in, you know, grade school? Junior, what did you guys do as a family together? You know, my mom, one of the genes I got from her is trip planning. My mom is just the quintessential trip planner, and she would plan... Uh, a lot of times we'd go to northern Michigan. My grandparents had a place up on a lake up there, so we'd go up there in the summer and just go swimming and, you know, big bonfires um, when we were trying to avoid the mosquitoes. <laughs> and then we generally would do trips, you know, did a lot of road trips across country. My parents loved taking us to Yellowstone and, and some of the national parks. We did wall drugs, so we'd, you know, go out west. So, yeah, my mom always loved planning trips to different places, showing us different things try to, you know, really show us as much of the U.S. as she could. So uh, so we did a lot of that stuff as kids, you know, as my, my younger sister and my younger brother. And I just, you know, like most kids, we'd be fighting in the back of the car, no seatbelts on at the time. <laughs> but, yeah, they were just really memorable fun right trips. On. Yeah. What was one of the most memorable trips you had, take, you had taken back then? You know, I, I think for me, going to places like Yellowstone, my parents were not big outdoor people. Like mm. the idea of camping, backpacking was not for them. But I remember going to places like Yellowstone and Glacier, and you'd see people, you know, coming in and backpacking, and you know, guys you could tell they had shaved in, you know, two weeks, and you know, you see people with bikes and panniers on their bikes doing some incredible, and just being out west and, and seeing people do that stuff, I was like, wow, this is cool. So that that stuff kind of always spoke to me as a kid, as a, at a younger age. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I think one thing I have noticed is when people tra talk about travel, yeah, it, it really has been the theme that a lot of people that, you know, the running races and the stuff we do together, a lot of the people travel. Yeah. It's just really amazing. And one of the questions that, or one of the, one of the comments I always get is, is that they, everybody that I've interviewed loves to travel. And I ask them, the, the question is, do you think travel is something that has shaped how you deal with things today? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think it's hard not to, you know, if you're sort of locked into one place, you only know one way of doing things. And I think, you know, you, we, when you travel both throughout the United States and throughout the world, you see that there's different ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. There's different, it doesn't all have to be done the way that it's been done in your little hometown. So I think, yeah, it just it opens your mind to new options and new ideas and new ways of looking at the world. And, you know, I, I mean, it, it's, you know, I, my wife, Joanne, my wife and I, we love eating. And I think, you know, that's the other thing is you learn so much about a culture yeah. 
by traveling somewhere and eating the food right. of that place. And you, you know, you just sort of learn about people. I mean, that, I would say, you know, that was one of the cool things I loved about Detroit um, growing up there is it's just, it, it really, the, the diversity of ethnic groups there is, is amazing. And, mm. you know, one week it would be a German festival, and, you know, and then it would be the Polish festival in Hamtramck. And then, you know, you had the big Greek population and, and you know, uh, obviously big Middle Eastern population. And so, you know, every week there'd be these different festivals or things going on right. or restaurants. And, you know, you just learn about people by, you know, by experiencing those sort of fun events with them and seeing how they celebrate their culture. So yeah, all that stuff is, it's good. Yeah. yeah. It's all good stuff. Yep. As one thing that's been really amazing to me is it's always, there's not one person that I have that doesn't really enjoy travel and learn so much from it. That's yeah. really amazing. So you're the eldest? I'm the eldest of three kids. Yeah. Three my, kids. My sister's about 18 months younger and then my brother's five years younger. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. pretty spread out. It's pretty, it's pretty spread out. Yeah. It's uh, my brother and I did a lot playing tennis and we roomed together and yeah. So we, yeah, it was, uh, but it was, yeah, it was, it was, we did a lot of fun stuff as kids. Yeah. Yeah. It was good. Awesome. And so in Michigan, when you were going to high school there, did you guys, I mean, I was asked this question. I'd like, I, I like knowing, like I have a lot of friends that were in band. Did yeah. you guys do competitions? Yeah, we did. So we did, we didn't do as much as some of the high schools now. You know, I've gone and visited some of the local high schools and it's, I mean, they have trophies. There. It's, it's really awesome. It's pretty amazing. Doing. You know, we basically did one, we had a, our marching band would do a local competition and then we, in the spring, our wind ensemble would do a competition. And I, one of the, you know, you're sort of asking me things you're, things that have changed. When I was senior drum major, every year we would get a division, you know, they, it was, I think you would get ranked division three, two, or one. Mm -hmm. And we were one being the highest every year we were division two, division two, division two. And so my senior year, we, we got a division one, which, you know, you sort of look back and I was like, we were, I was the drum major in the first marching band at my high school to get a division one. So sometimes I want to go back to the high school band program. And, you know, they'd probably be like, who is this old guy? And I'd be like, Hey man, we left our mark there. You left yeah. your mark. Yep. Yep. And so what, what part of Michigan is? So I was, we were in suburban Detroit, which is about 40 minutes north of Detroit itself, kind of up we were actually really close to Pontiac where the, Sil the Silverdome is, where okay. the Lions were playing at the time. Yeah, uh, Silverdome was 10 minutes away, and then the uh, Palace where the Pistons were playing at that time where it was, again, probably 10-minute drive from our house. Gotcha. So got to go to some Lions games and Pistons games, and it was, yeah, big Pistons fan. You are, okay, are you still? Uh yeah, they're horrible right now. I mean, it's. I mean, I keep hoping that they're going to turn it around. The Red Wings are starting to look better. The Lions are hopefully going to do it this year. It's hard being a Pistons fan right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can. I just remember back in the Pistons when the, the bad boys. And, yeah, and that was that kind of basketball just would not would, would be not tolerated happen today. Now. But yeah, we used to go when they played them because the Pistons played in the Silverdome for a while. So we would go. A lot of times on a Friday or Saturday night, you get tickets for five bucks way up in the nosebleed seats for like toga night or whatever. And so in high school, we'd go to those games and, you know, couldn't see anything on the floor, but it was a nice, nice, <laughs> nice diversion. Yeah, nice thing to do. So going through high school and everything, so you decide to go to college. How, what, tell me about all that. How, how does that come about? So again, my, my mom 
my mom, God bless her. She's awesome. She, we probably visited, but so both my parents went to University of Michigan. Okay. You know, that was kind of, I grew up a Michigan, you know, kid. My parents took me to games. Um, oddly enough, my parents weren't too excited about me going to Michigan. Um, we probably looked at, I mean, we had a spring break where we must have looked at 25 different colleges over you know, a week. Um, my mom really wanted all of her kids, you know, both my parents wanted her, their kids to get a really good college experience. So I actually kind of had my heart set on going to a place called Carleton College, which is up in Minnesota, a small liberal arts college. I had gone to summer camp there, just liked the vibe and it was really cool. But Michigan had a program called the Interflex program, which is a, at the time it was a seven year combined undergrad med school program. And, you know, and you know, there was a box that you would check when you were applying to the undergrad of, do you want to apply to Interflex? So I checked the box because I kind of knew I, at, you know, I thought I wanted to be a physician. I wasn't, you know, when you're a high school senior, you right. don't really know. Right. You don't know what you're getting into. Um, so I checked the box and uh, I got an interview. I remember getting out of the interview and my mom picked me up and she goes, how'd that go? I said, there is no way I'm getting it. Like I, it was not a good interview. But lo and behold, I found out a few weeks later that I got accepted to the Uniflex program. So, you know, we were all, we just had a 50-year reunion for the Uniflex program last year. And, you know, we, we said if we, if we were going to write a, a book about the program, I think, the, you know, the quote was, we all checked the box. You know, it was all, <laughs> it, I mean, it really was amazing how checking that box just changed the trajectory of your, of your life. Wow. Just one little thing, an interview, and then... You're in this program with, we had 44 of us in our class. You know, the first day, the, the, you know, the heads of the program were like, you know, statistically, two of you are going to get married. And everyone looks around like, <laughs> you know. But Joanne and I were the couple from that class to get married. Joanne was in it, too. So Joanne team. was in it, too. Yeah. So we met, we met our first day of freshman year. So, so yeah. And, and that cohort, those, you know, those kids now all in our mid-50s that, you know, those are the people that. I consider my closest friends because, you know, you're there from you're a college freshman to becoming a physician. And that seven-year window is just, it's intense. You see a lot of each other. But, yeah, you develop bonds and relationships yeah. that are just incredible. Yeah. You're just, you're, you're constantly together. Yeah. I mean, by the time you get to med school, you're now then sort of integrated more with a lot of the other medical students. So you don't see as much of each other, but especially those first three, four years, you know, we all had classes together. So yeah, we, we saw a lot of each other yeah. for the first, yeah. Do you think going through as a cohort, that's not, that's not all the time. I mean, that's, that, that is a special product of this program? This was this program. Yeah. So this, like I said, this was at the time it was, you know, if you really think you want to become a physician out of high school, let's get you in this program. And, and, and part of the bent of the program in some ways was... On the undergrad side of things was how do we they wanted the kids to take non-science classes and and because sort of the idea was you're in med school hit undergrad do what you want in undergrad if you want a double major double major you know we had one one of our friends was double majored in math you know there was obviously we still had to do organic chemistry and bio, you know and all those prerequisites but you know when we had electives I was taking history of music, history of jazz. I took a photography class. So there was kind of this, you know, it's in the undergrad portion of explore the humanities, you know, learn things outside of the hard sciences. And that was kind of a bent of the program. The other 
thing that they tried to do that wasn't, I think, quite as successful is they were trying to recruit people to go into primary care, like, you know, okay. like, you know, be a little bit of a generalist, which University of Michigan's kind of a specialty driven med school. So that was a little bit, um, so I did it, Joanne went into anesthesia. Most of the people in the program went into specialties, but yeah. Did they really? Yeah, yeah. Even though the bent was, and you actually followed the bent. I followed the bent, yeah, because as part of the program, for example, after our freshman year of college, you had to go spend, we went and spent three weeks with a primary care physician somewhere in Michigan. And the idea was, let's get you, you know, let's get you exposed to the life of a primary care physician. So I was way up in the very, it's the northernmost hospital up in the Upper Peninsula in Calumet, Michigan. I, I worked with this guy, Dr. Luoma, who was, actually I just reconnected with him a few weeks ago. And it was just, yeah, it was kind of an eye-opening. Even though my dad was a physician and I kind of knew what it was like to be a physician, my dad was a child psychiatrist, which is very different than being a family medicine doctor. Right. So, so yeah, so they, they tried to get us some exposure to that to try to encourage us to go into primary care. Gotcha. Yeah. But most people went to a specialty. Most people went to a specialty because by the time you get to med school, again, Michigan at the time was a very, we had no primary, we had no family medicine rotation that was required. We had four months of surgery and a bunch of months of inpatient internal, you know, right. it, it's, it's a, you know, compared to say the med school here or some other med schools, the, the, the bent was really like, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big research tertiary care gotcha. institution. Yeah. So what was, what was some, let's see what was some of the fun times you had with that group? Can you, is there anything that speaks out that was really fun or really impactful about that time yeah, in the pre-med? I, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard. I, I think the big adjustment for a lot of us was, you know, we all come from high school. We're all pretty much near the top of our class, if not at the top of our class. And then, you know, you get into this program with 44 other really brilliant <laughs> And so, you know, you kind of knew early on there was a bit of a pecking order of like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to compete. I mean, you know, <laughs> and, and I think it did sort of your sort of my mentality became less of I have to get an A in this class versus I just got to survive in advance, you know, and a lot of, you know, and, and so, yeah, so we just, you know, I think for the most part, the kids in our class you know, we always had a couple of what we called gunners, but, you know, the, the kids we hung out with were all, you know, it's like, how can we help each other? How can we support each other? Um, you know, we still had a lot. We'd go to football games and have parties. And um, our third and fourth, or once we got in the, the med school portion, they had a big med, med school musical where we had spoofed the oh, faculty. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We had this, it's it's called The Smoker. It's been there for, for decades now. Um, and it was pretty big production and we would rent out a, you know, and, and had a pit or so I conducted the pit orchestra for a couple of years. And <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we would have some fun that way, but again, it's still a lot of work. Yeah. 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 I can only imagine. So what was a, was there ever a time in when you were pre-med that you, and you were taking all those classes, doing all that stuff, is there, was there ever a time you doubted, Hey, am I, am I really on the right track? Yes and no. I mean, some of the classes, biochemistry was just, I had done really well in organic chemistry. You know, the story on that was, you know, when I was a kid, my every class I'd take in junior high school and high school, I'd be like, this is really hard. And my dad would be like, wait till you take organic chemistry. You know, I mean, and so I was completely focused on our, you know, so I, when I did organic chemistry, I was like, just, 
all in to the point where, yeah, there's a whole backstory where <laughs> Joanne and I had a little breakup during that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I got to biochemistry thinking, oh, I did really well in organic and it was tough. I mean, I, you know, I, I got through by the skin of my teeth and, and, I, and when you're going through those kind of struggles, I think sometimes you're like, why am I doing this? Is it, you know, but you know, I think I'd see my dad and I'd go, well, he's not really doing anything from biochem. I mean, yeah, he knows some of the, but you know, I kind of knew intuitively that, hey, some of these things are just hurdles that I need to get right. over. You don't live in them. You don't live, yeah. I'm not going to be a biochemistry major. I'm not going to be a PhD researcher, physician, you know, doing biochemistry stuff. So I just need to get through to this so I can get to these right. other goals. Yeah. What was the thing that drove you towards having a, you know, a general practice? It's a great question. So again, I worked with this doc up in Calumet. This is my freshman year. I did have a little weird episode. I was up on the coast up there in Lake Michigan on these sand dunes. And I had this weird sort of self-realization of like, I'm going to become a family physician. And actually, I had also was like, I think I'm going to get married to Joanne, which was really weird because we hadn't dated then. Like at all. Right. I mean, we knew each other. We were good friends. I kind of like shoved that down inside for a long time. <laughs> I actually worked in an orthopedics lab before my third and fourth, or yeah, before, right before med school, I worked a couple summers in an ortho lab and I really loved working in the ortho lab. It was really cool. So at, at that point, I thought I wanted to go into orthopedic surgery. And then I did my orthopedics rotation at Michigan and I just, hated it i mean really? I, yeah i worked with a i worked with a guy who was he was a very famous pediatric orthopedic surgeon you know and he just seemed miserable i mean and you know and so i was like what am i gonna do you know i don't want to do ortho and i started thinking about this experience i had with working with this doc in calumet and it was like god you know out of everything i've seen in med school that was like the thing i really liked the most our family practice chairman at the time was this guy, Tom Schwenk, who Tom eventually became the dean of the med school. He just stepped down as the dean of the med school here a couple of years ago. So it was great reconnecting with him. Here at UNR. Yeah, here at UNR. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. So so Tom was fairly, uh, Dr. Schwenk, I can't call him Tom. So Dr. Schwenk had just taken over the family practice chairman, and I just thought he was a cool, I mean, very organized, very just professional he made he made family medicine at michigan important which is that was a big big ask and i just was like dr schwank's cool dr lua was cool let me go so yeah so i decided to go into family medicine and my we all have to write a personal statement when we go into you know when we're applying to residency programs and go through this whole match process and i started thinking about it. i said well family doctors are the tuba players of the medical community like we're the foundation <laughs> We don't get, you know, we're not the poster boys. We don't get the solos. You know, we're not the ones that are driving the tickets, but we're the foundation. We're what drive, you know, without us, the soloists can't do what they do. So that was kind of, so it, it kind of tied back into that, that whole interesting thing for me. Yeah. That's very interesting how in, in kind of maybe a way, it sounds like you're much of that helper. Your life, has it been much like that in like... You are that kind of person. Do you think your your identity? I think my you know the older I get, it is. I mean, medicine has a lot of problems, and being a physician is getting harder and harder. But the essence of it 
which is we are there to help people get through some very, very difficult mm -hmm. medical problems and, and get through things that are either life-threatening or life-ending. You know, when you, when you distill it down to that, it's still a great job. It's, you know, so I think that idea of service and helping people, it's still what draws me. To, you know, that's, yeah. why, that's why Joanne and I still enjoy what we do. Yeah. yeah. And so did you see yourself growing up as that kind of person as well? You know, that's a good question. I, I think yes and no. I mean, you know, I think sometimes when you're younger, you have, I mean, I think we all have different aspirations of where we think our career could go. Or, An ideal. You know, ide yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I think that's the, the thing that you just never, I mean, I, you know, when I talk to medical students and residents who are graduating, I'm like, you don't know where your career is going to, you know, you don't know what doors are going to be closed for you and what doors are going to be open and where you're going to be like, boy, I never thought of that. Let's go this direction. You know, I, for a while, I thought I wanted to do more research. I actually, after I got done with residency at, in Wisconsin, I did a research fellowship and it was, so I'd been going to some research conferences, doing some things, and I kind of got away from it and got back into it. And it was a little weird seeing some of my colleagues from that research time. Now they're getting big NIH grants and they're full professors at various universities. And, you know, here I am, this family practice doc in private practice in a small practice in Reno, Nevada. But, and so I, I remember having a bit of a, like I said, this one research conference, the first year I went back after being away for about 10 years, I had a bit of a, you know, a little, little bit of envy, a little bit of like, why didn't I go that direction? And then, you know, once I started talking to some of them though, I sort of realized like, there's no, it's, it's not better or worse. It's just different. different. We've just gone different paths. And they're doing a lot of things that I have to admit, I don't think I had the right tool set to do. You know, I, they would start asking me about my practice and they'd be like, there's no way I could do what you guys do. So yeah, it's, you know, I, I think it's just more, you, you go down these various paths and you just sort of find what works for you. Yeah, yeah. The An interesting part of what I see in, in doctors and stuff is that, you know, it's like teachers or anything else. When you really are in your sweet spot, um, the normal problems, they're problems, but they're not as big as when you're not in that sweet spot. Right. And so talk to us a little bit about your sweet spot. What, what do you think your sweet spot is? Sweet in, spot meaning? In, in, in your practice and what you do now. You know, I think, I mean, you were, you, I guess you were, I think of you as you were made to do what you do. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I think there was a lot of things in my upbringing as a kid. You know, my dad never really talked to me a lot about, oh, here's what you have to do. I mean, it was never one of those like, well, if you're going to be a physician, you have to do this. And I mean, that was not his style. But growing up, you know, you, you're there firsthand. You see the commitment he had to taking care of patients the commitment he had, there, there was a, a funny story where he was on a local daytime TV show as, you know, kind of a, a, a talk show kind of thing. And he was there to talk about some psychiatric topic. And at the intermission, the producer got mad at him because he, was, he wasn't being controversial enough. They wanted oh. more. And, and my dad said, like, look, I'm here to educate. I'm here to help people. I'm not here to be controversial and I'm certainly not here to get ratings. So if you want me to leave, right, you know, and the producer sort of settled down. But, you know, I think my dad gave me a lot of, you would sort of see that. And so, yeah, I think in some ways that example just got sort of inbred to me. 
And, you know, as I became a physician, it was like, well, yeah, you kind of do. And it wasn't just my dad. It was a lot of his right. colleagues, you know, uh, other experiences I had with the medical community. So, right. yeah. That's really, that's really good. So you're coming out of pre-med. You go into med. You went to med at you went University, to, University of Michigan okay. for med school. Yep. Yep. And then getting once we started to get close to graduation, they have this whole thing called the match process. So it's essentially like a draft, mm-hmm. but you go interview throughout the country, and you get to you do get some as opposed to the draft where you don't get a choice. You you know you go interview. You give a list of here are the programs I want to. Here are the programs I want to be a member of, or I, I want to, to do my residency. The residencies come up with a list of here are the people that we like. It goes into this big computer somewhere in the middle of the country. <laughs> and in the middle of March, they have this big match day where everybody finds out where they're going. So so at that point, Joanne and I were had been dating pretty regularly. They have a process within the match where you can do a couples match. So the two of you can kind of oh, guarantee, nice. guarantee to be in the same... So we couples matched, which that's when my parents knew it was serious. <laughs> we, we weren't engaged. Yeah, we weren't, we weren't engaged at that point. But my, They knew but something was up. My parents were like, okay. So we ended up in Madison, Wisconsin. Great program. Had some incredible professors. Dr. Tempty, Dr. McBride, Dr. Hahn were just, you know, taught me so much about family medicine. And then I stuck around for a couple of years and did a research fellowship. And, and yeah, we had a good time there. Yeah, That's awesome. Yeah. And so how did you make it to Reno? Good question, Ken. So one of my really good friends in residency had, who was at the clinic I was working at, was this guy, Bob Kimmel. And Bob and his then wife, Jen, were from Nevada. And Bob and I just, we were were good friends. We hit it off. And so once Bob got done with residency, he moved back. He actually practiced out in Dayton for a little bit. Now he's with the VA. And so Joanne and I had a vacation, and we said, let's go west. And so we flew out. I remember it was May. We went hiking down in Yosemite, and our hiking trip got messed up. You know, the, the, the rangers were like, are you ready for snow? We're like, sure. And then we didn't realize there would be so much snow you couldn't see the trail. <laughs> so we had, we had this crazy hiking trip down in Yosemite, and then we came up, spent a couple days at the lake, a couple days in Reno. And, and we were sort of like, hey, we had been in the Midwest our whole lives. Let's do something different. I was always kind of fascinated with Nevada. We got engaged in Las Vegas. At the time, I was doing research on gambling addiction, and there was something about the gambling culture. <laughs> now gambling's everywhere, but right. back, you know, back in the 90s, this was the epicenter of, of gambling. And so we came out, visited Bob, and Bob made some comment like, oh, you guys are Midwesterners. You don't have the guts to move out here. And that kind of got Joanne and I's cross. <laughs> so when we started looking for jobs after, after our fellowships, we, you know, we— we looked a little bit in Madison, but the job market there wasn't great for, for especially for Joanne. And there was this, there was one of Joanne's current partners had done his residency in Wisconsin many many years ago. So Joanne had actually already sent her application in, and then it was sort of this weird like, oh, you want to come here? You know. So we came out, we interviewed in January. I remember we flew out on Saturday, Sunday. We went up to Royal Gorge and went cross country skiing, which is my my thing. I mean, just beautiful bluebird day. <laughs> Tracks were just groomed like an Olympic course. I mean, it was phenomenal. And and they basically, Joanne interviewed on Monday. I interviewed uh, with uh, a couple of the hospital systems here. And by I think, like, they basically told Joanne, like, if you want a job here, we'd love to have you, but you got to let us know by Wednesday. Um, oh, wow. And, yeah, and it was quick. So we're like, yeah, what the hell? Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's how we ended up here in 1998. 
1998. Yep. Wow. And then, so you worked... Within the hospital system? So I worked for, it was then Washoe, now Renown. I worked for them for about six and a half years. Uh, yeah, I worked for them to the start of, end of 2004 and then 2005. I had a different vision of what I wanted my family medicine office to be, and I wanted a little bit more control over some of the things that I didn't have. I mean, Washoe, it, that was a good place to start here in Reno, I, but I there were so many things that I thought I could do different or better or help with patient sure. communication. So I said... Let's start our. Own, let's start my own practice. So we did that in two thousand five. Nice. Yeah. So, you know, and I know I've had a, several friends in the past that were docs, some some sort or another. But I always like to ask the question of how, because basically now you became an entrepreneur. Yeah. And how does that work with physician and business? I've always was very intrigued by that. It. I would say up until COVID, it was really easy. <laughs> it really was. You know, I mean, you you find the right people, you get the right people in place, you do your contracts. You know, you kind of know if I see this many patients a day, I'm going to get paid this roughly this amount, and you build your budget around that. And you know, and and it, it looking around, you know, fortunately in Reno we have a lot of docs who are in small private practices, so I'm like, we, it can work here. You know, it's right. not like this is this crazy idea. I would say once COVID hit, that was one of the biggest challenges of COVID was, you know, I'm trying to keep our patients healthy. I'm now worried about keeping my staff healthy, not just from keeping them healthy, but if they get sick, they're missing work. If they're, if they're out, we can't do things. You know, those first couple months when things kind of really shut down, I mean, we were still seeing patients, but not anywhere close to the volume. So I still have overhead, but we don't have, you know, one of the downsides of a fee-for-service medical community is if you're not doing stuff, you're not getting paid. So it was, COVID was really stressful. It was, I mean, it was obviously stressful for everybody, but it was, you know, there was a lot of sleepless nights worrying about, you know, we want to be there for the community. We want, you know, you know, and fortunately I would say the a lot of community folks did a lot of things to help us out too. I mean, we got some folks from the Reno Wheel. We sponsored Reno Wheelman, and Reno Wheelman gave me this little basket one day. It just, I, I still get teary eyed thinking about. It. I mean, so we got a lot of support from the community, but it was it was hard. It was it was especially that first year was really rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can only imagine you guys are on the front lines of it as well, and you're trying right. to help people. We're, and... Right, we're trying to help people. We're trying to keep people. You know, big thing then were too is like. We don't want people, you know, if they don't have to go to the ER, let's, we didn't want the ERs to get overwhelmed. So, um, so we were doing a lot more urgent care stuff. I remember, you know, we were ordering a lot of stat stuff because we were, you know, trying to take some of the burden off the ER. And it was, like I said, it was, it was challenging. It's challenging. Yeah. 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 So being an entrepreneur in this industry, do you have any mentors that helped you through, who was somebody that really helped you in your practice? Yeah. You know, oddly, when I was younger, I didn't have a lot of folks. It, a lot of it was I kind of had my own vision of what I wanted to do, you know, especially from a business side of things. I think from what kind of doctor I wanted to be and how, you know, what my, what kind of medicine I wanted to practice and how I wanted to treat my community. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, especially in residency, I had all sorts of great, you know, role models and examples of, of, of what I wanted to be from a business side, not as much. Really? Now, fortunately over the last few years, I was telling you, I got reinvolved with this primary care research organization. And through that, we have a little cohort of us that are more practicing clinicians than, than, you know, 
researchers because a lot of primary care researchers or a lot of primary care researchers come from practicing clinicians. So through that group, I've developed a couple resources. There's a guy, Ed Bujold, who's in North Carolina. And and I would say even lately here, John Hess, who's a family practice doc here in, in Reno. Those are two of my main, when I'm having, you know, issues with straight you know, i'll text john or i'll text ed and go man what are you guys doing with this and you know and a lot of times they don't have solutions but they have the same problems which makes me feel better right 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 <laughs> at least you're all together in the right, same boat. exactly yeah. yeah and there's some comfort there's a lot of comfort in that yeah yeah and so joanne took off in her career yep here and she's an anesthesiologist she's an anesthesiologist and so how's that living with somebody who does a different i think it's really Good. You know, when, so when we were younger, we had a lot, I, mean, I don't want to get too much into like, you know, the newlywed <laughs> game kind of stuff, but you know, it, it was interesting when we were younger and we had a lot of on again, off again kind of things. And I think looking back, you know, we were all taking about the same classes. So the finals, the stresses were all at the same and maybe the way that we get, dealt with them back then was a little bit different. I think now, well, once we got the third and fourth year of med school, that's when we started kind of getting back together and more seriously dating. And I think in part, I look back at that point that we're doing different. Ro- so, you know, I might be on surgery, which is a really tough rotation, and she might be doing something easier, you know, quote right. unquote easier. Um, or she would be on surgery and I, you know, um, or when we were in residency, you know, she'd be on a tough rotation or so I, I think it's, she's got a, I mean, we both say the same thing. Neither of us could do what the other person does. I think what she does in her job, you know, is just absolutely incredible. But I think now we're a little bit better at, you know, you know, this, she has her stressful times and I supporting her and then vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. So this brings us really to running. Yeah. That's how I met you. Yep. And so you played tuba. Yep. Went to med school. Yep. Not a mention of running. I ran a little bit in junior high. Uh-huh. Didn't take it seriously. When we got to med school, Joanne had done a little women's 5K, and she got into she got back into running, and she always really liked running. She then invited me. There's a little town called Frankenmuth, Michigan, which is this little German town with famous for their fried chicken. And they, on the 4th of July, they had a 5K. And Joanne's like, I'm going up to Frankenmuth on the 4th of July to do this 5K. Do you want to come with me? And I said, they have good beer there. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> yeah. So we went. We literally camped. There was a, you know, a campground, which was a corn. It was a mowed down cornfield. We went. I posted a, a photo of myself. On, I found a little photo from that race. You know, it's, it's blurry, but it was just Midwestern hot. You know, probably 90 degrees, high humidity. I remember... The fire department at mile two had their uh, ladder oh, out yeah. with a hose going um, and did my first 5K. And I was like, that was painful. But that started to get us into running. Um, when we got to Madison, uh, when, it, when it did residency in Madison, Wisconsin, our residency program, we had a lot of really good athletic people. Um, and so there was a little bit more of a, you know, and, and Madison, I think, had some really good opportunities to kind of, and, and, and even in, in, in Ann Arbor, I started to do a few more 5Ks, 10Ks. When we got to Madison, started to take it a little bit more seriously. We did our first marathon in 2000, oh no, 1997? Yeah, I think 97, we did Madison Marathon, which was our first marathon. So, and then, you know, that was one of our attractions to coming out to Reno was 
the weather's you know running outdoor running in madison in the winter i can is only imagine miserable i can't yeah. even fathom it yeah i mean we used to laugh about getting soaker you know you go run in february and where the drains are you get soaker foot you know and, and so we're like oh, god it's, weather's really nice here in rio so it's good <laughs> for training outside so yeah so we've kind of been running and then you know for a while i was doing some cycling and i've gotten away from that but and then we came here for the cross-country skiing too so it's been fun yeah yeah how'd you get acquainted with the striders I think we started doing some of the race series. Yeah, I mean, somewhere actually at our place up in Truckee, we still have a plaque of, you know, I finished second for my age group in the race series. And so we, you know, we started doing, and at the time we were doing a lot more road running. Joanne had been really uh, dedicated to trying to qualify for Boston and do Boston. Mm-hmm. You know, our first marathon, I think we ran in 412. And, you know, at the time, you know, I was like, there's no way. I mean, looking at the qualifying times, like, there's no way we'll ever qualify for Boston. <laughs> but Joanne kept getting faster and faster, and so she qualified. And then I had been doing some races, getting faster and faster, and so, and that was just doing stuff with striders. And then, yeah, we did, we, I ended up qualifying for Boston, which was a cool experience, and we did that in 2005. And then at that point, we'd kind of done, I was like, okay, I'm, I did Boston. Like, I don't know if I want to do another road marathon. Like, I mean... <laughs> Every other road marathon is going to kind of not be. And we've done a few other road marathons since then, but that's when we started doing stuff on the trails. And we did TRT and, and really. Which distance? We did the 55K. Huh. I think we did that in 2005. And yeah, Joanne, I remember her, the Boy Scouts having to take care of her up at the top, top of Snow Valley. <laughs> you know, we, we made that rookie mistake of, well, a mar- you know, a 50K is only six miles longer than a marathon. Right. Well, it's TRT and it's yeah. not. It's more like eight miles longer. And, you yeah. Know, so, but yeah, and then just kind of got to know the striders through what really working at Tunnel Creek was a lot of it. Yeah. Really? Tunnel Creek, aid station. How did you get to work at Tunnel Creek? How'd that all happen? So again, Joanne was part of that. She had actually worked at TRT a number of years ago and was like, God, they don't really have much medical here. And so she was kind of talking to me about doing some stuff. And then what happened was George and, and Dave Cotter at the time mm-hmm. reached out to the, the sports medicine fellowship at UNR about them being the medical directors for, for TRT. And the, the sports medicine fellow at the time, really nice guy, but had never been to a trail running race. He started reading about marathons and was like, oh, we're going to do this and this and this. And he had heard that I was a trail runner. And I, even though I'm not on faculty, I do a lot of stuff with the fellowship. So he kind of reached out to me. He's like, okay, so we're going to have aid stations every two or three miles. And I was like, oh, <laughs> time out, Junior. Like, yeah, like you don't know what trail running's like. So I kind of said, hey, let me help you out with this. We reached out to Western States, got their medical protocols, and then kind of developed the, you know, the TRT medical team from there. So, so yeah, I mean, that's – and so, it was, again, you know, it was one of those things when I talked to medical students and residents – I think to myself, like, I never, like, the idea of being a race or a medical director for a major race, that was not on my bingo card (laughs) when I graduated medical school in 1993. But these are just sometimes those, you know, you got to go with the path. And so you guys have run a lot of races Mm -hmm. and you guys run them together for the most part. For the most part. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen Joanne just haul you up some mountains and and you're just... (laughs) You have somewhat of a smile on your face, but so what, what that question is, why do you guys run them together? I mean, I, I think it's awesome, but not a lot um, of people do that. Right. In part, 
If we didn't, we'd never see each other. I mean, that's kind of <laughs> that's that's the reality. I mean, that's the reality. You know, the re- the reality is during the week. You know, we have weeks where our our awake hours during the week. You know, we might see each other for eight hours. I mean, between meetings and call and all this other stuff. So, you know, on the weekends, it just you know, a we're about the same pace. I mean, she's on the uphill. She's faster. <laughs> I can still take her on a flat. I will. I will. <laughs> She will, yeah. Don't give up no, on I'm that. Not, I'm not giving up on no. that. But, you know, we're roughly the same pace, depending on the, you know, the day. Yeah. A lot of times we'll help each other out. And, yeah, I mean, and I think part of the other answer is that's when we get to socialize and talk about stuff. Yeah. And, you know, on the weekends, you know, we're out, you know, trying to solve all of our problems on the trails <laughs> and talking with each other. And, you know, I mean, we still, I would say lately we're doing a little bit, you know, during the week we have to do our workouts separately, but... Yeah, a lot of times on race day, it's kind of like, we might as well do this together because we're going to be about the same. So, right. Yeah. That, that's awesome. So what's a race you guys re- you remember that's maybe had some challenges in it you guys did together? That we did together? Castle Peak, 100K. No <laughs> Dig <doubt>. long. <laughs> no doubt. Out of all the races, you know, I mean, that literally goes i mean the, we knew the trails incredibly well they go literally go through our backyard and right i mean up in Truckee. yeah and we were hauling that day. i mean we were feeling good we were feeling strong we hit the aid station at in castle or Ca- i guess it's called castle peak or you know george ruiz is there we're getting we're getting that's the top of the hill pops. right uh, it's sort of down in the valley oh, yeah the valley. yeah you come off castle peak and you come down come before you go up a uh, hole in the ground we're there, we're having, you know, freezer pops, we're feeling good. And we were with a few other people, Steve Martelli and a, a couple of our other friends, Jesse Goldstein, and they're all like, guys, we got to start hauling to make the next aid station. I'm like, no, we're fine. Like, because we were 45 minutes ahead of the cutoff at that aid station. So we go, we do hole in the ground, and we're coming around, and we're thinking, all of a sudden we start looking, at the, and we're like, we're going to miss the cutoff. <laughs> and at that point, we were kind of like, okay, we're going to get into Van Norden at mile 50, and... We'll be 10 minutes late. I was going to, there's a little general store right there on, right. on Old 40. I had actually had money with me, so I was going to jump in there and get, buy a gin and tonic and show up <laughs> at the aid station, you know. Um, and uh, uh, so we're like, well, it was a good day. It was 50 miles, but we missed the cutoff. We tried our hardest. And then we're coming up, we're coming up the, the road there, and uh, Andy Sarasco is there, and he goes, they changed the cutoff. It's now 30 minutes longer. You're still in the race. <laughs> oh, no. And so I actually, I was like, all right, we're back in. Let's go. Like, you know, I mean, for me, it was like, okay, this is going to be hard, but I'm back in the game. We just have to get through this. Joanna was in meltdown. (laughs) And luckily we got into Van Norden and luckily Shannon Martin was there. And I just looked at Shannon. I go, I don't know what to do. Like, yeah. And Shannon just did not, you know, she's like, Here's your dry shirt. Here's your headlamp. Here's your water. Here's your quesadilla. Go, you know, and got got us both back out there. So I think that was one. That was actually one. And then you know, I you know, my biggest thing at that point was like, let's just not miss a turn. So I was just you know, laser focused on where's the next, you know, because I'm like, if we miss a turn, we're done. We're this right, right. So, but yeah, I think out of all the races we did, that was the one where we definitely had to dig dig the deepest. And I think. Yeah, Peter Fain changing that cutoff. I'm still. <laughs> you had every plans. time we see him, we're like, we can't believe you did that. Yeah, you had yeah. plans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. So, and you guys finished? We finished. Yeah, and I only I think 
I might have been the last male finisher, and I think we had two or three people, or maybe a couple people. Yeah, but we were we were close to dead last in that one. But it's one of the races I think we're most proud of. That's not great. Yeah, yeah. Is that the what's the longest distance you've gone? We've done 100 miles. Yeah, we did Havelina 2018, 2019. Yeah, we did Havelina one year. Which nice. I mean, Havelina 100 miles was hard, but Castle Peak was tougher. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's a tough race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's not for the weak at heart. No. You know, but again, I think, you know, I, you know, Joanna and I remember when we did Havelina, you know, it's hard. It's the middle of the night, you know, three o'clock in the morning. But again, you know, coming from the medical field, I remember, you know, I wrote someone like, well, we could be working in the hospital or we could be patients in the right. hospital. <laughs> so let's be grateful and just keep moving. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. So in your new role that you have with Western States. You're now the medical director yep. for the race. And you, you're the medical director for TRT too. Correct. Yeah. So, and I know you're with us. We get the, we get the pleasure of hanging out with you all weekend at TRT. It's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like it. Um, but how's that going? You know, how did, how, how did it come about with Western States? I know that you had been down to Peachstone. Yeah. One of the aid stations and you were there, how did that all come about? So I had been working, we'd been going down to Peachstone for a few years. You know, I had done stuff with Western States. Once I became medical director of TRT, I reached out to some of the folks at, at Western States, primarily Marty Hoffman, who was the research director of Western States at the time and has done incredible research and was and still is doing all this stuff to advance the science of ultra running. Um, and so Marty had some research conferences that were going on with Western States and you know, for me, I was like, well, I do TRT once a year. For me to really learn about this, I got to talk to other medical directors and, and, and other. So I started working with Marty and his foundation and a few other people, some people in Europe who did ultra running and really got involved with the, the ultra running medical community and the other healthcare providers who are, who are taking care of, you know, ultra runners. And then we'd been working at Peachstone for a while. And then Bob Weiss had been the, he was the previous medical director mm-hmm. for Western States and had been there and done a great job. And Bob was just, he was getting, he's getting close. Or I think at the time he was retiring from UC Davis as a nephrologist. And so he was like, this is going to be my last year. And so, you know, I knew, I sort of was like, well, let me throw my name in the hat. And so kind of threw my name in the hat and taught, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd had a relationship with Craig and um, kind of chatted with him. And so, yeah, I went and we did an interview with Craig and uh, um, uh, Tweet uh, was there and just kind of chatted about, you know, Western states and, you know, what what we what they wanted out of a, out of a medical director and what I thought I could provide as a medical director and I was just yeah I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate that they picked me and it's been it's kind of one of the biggest yeah I mean it's it's you know there's I think there's only been four or five medical directors in the history of Western really? states yeah yeah so I mean, they hang out was, it was Bob Lynn for a long time and so there's there's not been many so in some ways for me it's it, it's like, man, I'm in a really select group of people. And, and just, you know, I, I had known about the race. I've, you know, we worked at Peachstone. We've been to the Golden Hour. But being medical director has been, it's opened my eyes to more about the race, more about the runners, the history of the race. Yeah, and so I, I'm just like, I got to keep living up yeah. to that Western state state. Yeah, it's yeah. just, it's so yeah. storied. Yeah, yeah. It's such a wonderful, yeah. wonderful event. Yeah. 
I, I would say the other thing that was really an eye-opener for me is compared to TRT, which kind of happens and nobody knows what's going on, the amount of that, that first year at Western States, I was like, there's cameras everywhere. <laughs> and this is getting live streamed all across the world. I was like, I was not ready for that <laughs> pressure. So now I'm a little bit better with that. But yeah, I'm like, okay, that's something we need to expect. But yeah, so that, that, was, a, that was a big difference between the two races. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That, that's great. Now, in your, part of your practice, you have a sports medicine side to it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I primarily do primary care, take care of people of all ages. But we, you know, we do some VO2 max testing, lactate threshold testing. We have a, a guy that we work with now who's doing bike fitting in our office. So we do try to reach out to a lot of endurance athletes. And then I think what's even more valuable is, we, you know, we get a lot of endurance athletes who come to see me because they know... I'm kind of going to be familiar with their problems or their issues yeah. or, you know, there might be something where they know another doctor might say, oh, you shouldn't do that, you know, and I'll, I'll be like, all right, let's try to figure out how we could pull this one off, you know, so, or they have some medical, you know, I mean, it, it, to me, what's just really fun about the, the medical, the, the medical coverage of ultras is, you know, the number of people who have diabetes, seizures, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, I mean, just this whole laundry list of common medical problems but they're still putting themselves out there and doing 50 miles and 100 miles and so there are particular challenges that come up with those things you know when you're doing 100 miles and you have type 1 diabetes how do we manage that if you you know and so and there's not a lot of the, the end the number of people doing these is not very big so you know, you kind of reach out to other people in the world and say, hey, do you guys have a runner with this or that? So and, and you, and that's, I mean, that's, that's where it really gets fun. Yeah. 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 And I've got some questions to, uh, yeah. to, to ask you about that in a minute. But well, before we get off of that, I, I wanted to know what are maybe some of the two or three people that have really influenced your career that you thought a lot about. Maybe you had an aha moment with them. Maybe you've already mentioned it, but is there anybody else you can think of that you could go, you know what? I don't know if I'd be here without that influence. I think I've mentioned mo. Yeah, I think I've mentioned the main ones. Anybody recently? Man, anybody recently? I don't want to sound like I'm sucking up too much, but I will. <laughs> uh, no. Go uh, for it. Par- Part of the reason, one of the things I really love about Western states is it's kind of funny. They're like, well, you don't have to be at the board meeting. Like, you know, they're sort of like, oh, if you want to come to the medical stuff and, and be on the, you know, and I'm like, you know, you, we'll, we'll carve out your 30 minutes. And I go, no, no, I want, I want to sit through these board meetings. And they're kind of like, it, but I'm learning from all those people. I mean, the way Craig does things with a high pressure job. It's amazing. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, you know, Diana Fitzpatrick watching her navigate the, and everybody on, I mean, and, and just the way that the board is. So, I mean, I think, and, and sometimes Joanne's like, you know, why do you get involved with Western states? I've done, a, I would say equally, there's been a lot of people at our state, I, you know, just got done as president of our state medical association and same thing. I mean, there's some, some, you know, there's some people with NSMA that I'm just, you know, I, I just, learn from them. I, I, you know, 
Andy Eisen, Suji Riganti, Jay Morgan. I mean, they're all just all these incredible just, and I think, you know, for me professionally, I think one of the challenges for me professionally that was a big jump was when I was in residency and fellowship, I, you're, you're constantly interacting with different, you know, my fellowship years were great. I was going to class. I was seeing patients. I was moonlighting. I mean, every day I was doing something different, interacting with different people. You, you get into private practice and especially as family medicine where I'm not in the hospital, it's the same office, the same, you know, I'm working with Teresa Angerman and the same providers and the same staff. It's a good job, but it, you don't get that interaction with other professional. I mean, I think Joanne gets a little bit of more, more of that with her job in some ways. So for me, you know, being involved with the Western States Board, being involved with the Nevada State Medical Association and Washoe County Medical Association, you know, I get to interact with all these, you know, we have a, a young doc, Dr. Curry Winchell, who's our current county president, and she's just this fireball of energy and social, you know, and I'm like, that's awesome. Like that, you know, so, right. I, so there, I think that's why, you know, sometimes like again, Joanne's like, why are you involved with all this stuff? It's more meetings. And I'm like, yeah, but A, I'm learning from these people and B, you know, I think they're also people that really, they're doing such good work that they set a standard and a, they set a bar there for you that you're like, okay, I got to, yeah. I got to live up to yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's somewhat of an accountability. And, yeah. Yeah. And, but you're gleaning. Yeah. No, that's really good. Yeah. It's really good. Is there an event in your career in medicine? First one is about medicine. I'm gonna, the second one I want to ask yeah. about running. But okay. is there is there an event that you could look back to and you say, "Wow, that that really as a medical professional, is there an event that you could go back and go, "Wow, that really helped me change my life, change the tra- trajectory." Besides checking the box, yeah, <laughs> I think out of there were a couple. So when I was young, when I was doing my fellowship, you know, I was doing this research thing. And there were there were two docs in particular, this guy, David Hahn, who was in Madison, Wisconsin. And then another guy, Bill, Dr. Bill Phillips, who was up on Seattle. And I got to know them through this primary care, or I got to know David through doing some research. I got to know Dr. Phillips through um, this primary, NAPCRAG, this primary care research group. And I think they were really good examples to me as a young, you know, doing resident fellow of here are ways that you can, they were both practicing physicians in their community. They weren't, I mean, they had appointments with universities, but right. they weren't employed by the university. And just watching them as family physicians, not just take care of patients in their community, but think about things like research and community and bigger, you know, bigger questions. And, and there were a few, a few other faculty at, in, in Madison as well. But I think for me, particularly as someone who ended up in private practice, you know, it, it, I think those two really were a good example of I don't have to go down the university route to do some of these things. I can, I can open my own practice. You know, I can be in private practice and still do a lot of those things. So I would say those professionally, those are probably two of the people that really kind of opened my eyes to a pathway that I don't know if I would have, you know, it, it, had I not seen that that was a way that you could go, right. I might have gone a different direction. Right. Yeah. Right. Because yep. you are very community minded. It, it comes, it shows through in everything that you do. Yeah. I think when you have a practice or you have a, you know, you have a company or business or whatever, and that's obviously your, your bent, it's what you do. But when you do stuff outside of that, 
to help better the community, to better whatever. That's a beautiful thing. Here's the dirty secret. I'm doing it for self-preservation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm trying to make the healthier our community is, the easier my job is taking care of patients in yeah. the office. You know, and, and again, I go to this primary care, I go to this NAPCRAIC meeting and, you know, people will talk about practicing in areas where there's, you know, there's, there's no green space for people to exercise in. You know, there's, you know, there's not a grocery store with fresh food within five miles of some, you know, and, you know, and I tell my patients here, I'm like, you know, patients, especially this time of year, everyone's like, okay, my new year's resolutions, yeah. I, you know, yeah. I'm going to join the gym and I'm going to, and I'm like, I'm going to buy all this equipment. I'm like, guys, we got trails. Like, yeah. They're free to <laughs> go. Like, and, you know, we do have to do some, sometimes some education because the trails can be intimidating for yeah. some people. But I think, yeah, I mean, so a lot of the stuff that I do, it's like, how do we preserve this? Because if patients, if my patients can be outside and they can be active yeah. and they can be healthy and they can eat healthy food, that makes my life a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So in running. Yep. You told us about the experience on up at Castle Peak. Yeah. Is there any other running experiences you've had that have actually like changed how you look at things? And I, I think qualifying for, Bo- I mean, qualifying for Boston had to be the one for me that just gave me a, you know, again, I mean, when we did our first marathon, I think we finished in like 412, 415. And, you know, I remember thinking like I would have to take an hour off my time to qualify for Boston. Like, Crazy. There's no way. Yeah. Um, you know, we moved from, you know, we did that one in Wisconsin. We moved out to Reno. I, I lost 20 pounds immediately because we stopped eating bratwurst and <laughs> Kringles and cheese curds and frozen custard and all that great food in Wisconsin. We came out to Reno. I'm like, man, wait, just came right. You know, started taking running maybe a little bit more seriously, you know, started actually, you know, training a little bit more. Although when we did our Madison marathon, we trained for it. But and just kind of found myself getting a little faster, a little faster. I remember we did a Tucson half marathon, and I ran like a 127. I mean, it's a downhill course, but still, I was like, wow. So that was like the first, like, maybe I could do this. <laughs> and then, yeah, so end of 2004, we went back to Tucson marathon. Joanne qualified for Boston. I ran with her, felt really comfortable, felt good. I remember leading up to that, we did the the... Nevada Day race in Carson, and mm-hmm. I blit. I it was, I just was like, halt. I mean, I can't remember what my time <laughs> was, but I was like, oh my god, that was you know. So when jo- Joanne qualified for Boston, I said, well, let me sign up for Phoenix Rock and Roll Marathon, which was I think five or six weeks after. Got there and just it was just a magical day. I mean, just weird stuff happened during the race that just got me through the race. Um, yeah, qualified by 28 or 29 seconds. So it was, yeah, it was, and I, there was just, like I said, weird stuff that happened that day that just worked out. So, and I think when, when I ran that, it gave me, I don't want to say, like, look, you don't have to qualify for Boston to be a legitimate runner, but I think it, it, for me, it was like, wow, I, that was, I worked hard. That was special. Yeah. 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 That's incredible. If someone were going through a tough time, and I know you got you see it more than anybody, yep. probably mm-hmm. more than most. What's something that you would? What's what's some coaching advice that Doctor Passionate gives to his his struggling people in his life? People that what what's some of the go tos that you would say if somebody was struggling? What would you how would you help them? Well, I think 
It's, it's, and I've been listening to a lot of the answers from a lot of the other people that you've interviewed, which <laughs> have all been great answers. I'm like, ah, I can remember that one. You know, I, I think the first thing to just, yeah, realize is we're all going to have struggle. I mean, not feeling good, struggling, not feeling confident about your health, not feeling feeling scared. I think sometimes there are people like, why am I feeling this way? And I'm like, that's because that's with what you're going through. Those are normal. And I think, so I think sometimes just accepting that, you know, hey, these are normal feelings and it's okay to be scared and it's okay to be depressed. It's okay to be anxious. You know, that's one of the first things, you know, I think every, a lot of the answers, you know, as people said, like relying on others, you know, and, yeah, and it's the most popular one. Yeah. And well, you know, and I, I was using the analogy, I was thinking about this the other day, again, I was listening to some of your podcasts and we were out doing some trails the other day and, um, down in San Diego and it was a new place and we didn't really know where we were going. I mean, we, we didn't get lost, but we had a couple places where right. we made a couple wrong turns. And I was kind of thinking about that vis-a-vis being in a trail running race. And, you know, part of the beauty of the races is you have more, the course is marked. You have aid stations with people cheering you on. You have this support. And I'm like, if you can make your life more like a race where maybe you have someone not, you you still have to do it on your own, but you have someone marking the course for you or someone at an aid station to cheer you on. That's a lot easier than, I mean, the people who do solo events are, I mean, that's impressive. To me too. Right. I mean, (laughs) right. Because it takes away. So, you know, sometimes I think about that. I'm like, yeah, if you can figure out a way to, you know, and, 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 and it's a bit of a metaphor and it's always easier said than done, but you know, those kind of things just, you just have more confidence when you're like, okay, this is the path I need to go down. But to get there, someone's got to help out. I mean, you're not marking the trail yourself. Someone's doing that for you. So, yeah, I think just that idea of reaching out to people, again, I mean, with, you know, especially, like I said, during COVID in in my office, you know, I I was reaching out to some friends who are family physicians and, you know, again, bouncing stuff off of them. And and that didn't, again, we didn't always come up with solutions, but sometimes I'm like, okay, that's the path I need to go. At least I know what path I need to go down as opposed to getting to a trail intersection and, you know, there's six trails and you're like, I don't know, and you just freeze. Yeah. So having those people in your life as markers and helpers and yeah, yeah, it's so true. And we don't run the race of life alone. Right. And if you do, you're going to be really tired. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's so good. Yeah. So good. I, I, this is a question I always ask too, and it's a spiritual question. You know, I'm yeah. a big believer. I love, I love the Lord. How does that come? How does that play into your life as far as identity? And I mean, the in the medical field, you see a lot of things, right? And you've probably seen some crazy, crazy things. I would, I would, I would have to say that this question for the for the medical field is very interesting yeah. because you you have people with faith and you have people that don't have any faith. Right. So how does that work for you and your identity? And Yeah. So I grew up Catholic. You know, I, my parents were, you know, went through the whole catechism thing. I wouldn't say my parents. Looking back, my parents, once they got all the kids out of catechism, my parents weren't going to church that much anymore. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think that they did like the idea of raising us in a religion. And, you know, and I, I do think some of the... Some of the lessons and the foundation, I think, are, are, are really important. 
I got to tell you, Ken, I, there's days I'm convinced there's something out there, and then there's other days I can't make any sense of it. Um, you know, and I think especially in medicine, um, I mean, I think in, with anybody, but, you know, in medicine I've seen things that I can't explain, and then I go, well, maybe there is some higher spiritual power that we don't know. And then, you know, sadly, you know, we see other, uh, you know, so many friends, young and, you know, patients of mine that are friends who get, you know, that's one of the hard parts of the job is when I, I enjoy seeing my friends, but I've had three or four examples where they've had, you know, we, we diagnose them with something and they're dead within a year. Right. Um, and it just, there's an unfairness to it that I still, I still struggle with. Wrestle um, with. Yeah. We had a really good friend of ours from med school died probably 10 or 15 years ago. He had a really rare muscle tumor and just the greatest guy married a couple of kids, you know, just was so much fun. And, and, you know, we were probably late thirties, early forties, probably late thirties at that point. And, you know, it was really hard for me for a long time taking care of patients because here he is dead. And then I'd have some 80 year old smoking two packs a day, drinking, you know, a fifth of Jack Daniels, who's just rolling along and and not to say I, I wish ill I mean I, I right. still want that person to be healthy still, and, and do stuff still weird but it's it it it, it there was there's a lot when when you have that kind of unfairness some I mean and I again if if you're spiritual you kind of have a sense of maybe there's some bigger plan or yeah. some but it's still it, so those are the ones where I'm just like I just don't know there seems to be some more randomness and just, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where I think it gets tough for me. Yeah. yeah. I, can, I can only imagine, Yeah, you know, so it's, it is very interesting. It's, it, you see both sides of it really up close and personal yeah. in what you do. Right. And it's, yeah. And then, like I said, equally, I've had other, you know, patients where again, things happen and you're just like, there was someone looking out for you on that. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you can't explain it. And yeah, you just go, man, that's just yeah. a wild story. And, yeah, you used up two of your nine lives on yeah. that one. So, yeah, yeah. I've never, my wife, Diane, always says, it's tr- never try to understand an infinite God with a finite mind because you'll go nuts. And I think that's probably where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot. Yeah. The older I get, you know, the, the more Joanne and I talk, and we're like, the older we get, the more we're like, we just don't know. <laughs> yep. It's a journey. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm. Just want to kind of finish up with this, and it's more of a question between you and me. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I went through a pretty significant event in my life. Can I, can I have you sign a HIPAA release? Yeah. <laughs> I gotta use me. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've signed that thing. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, we're good. Yeah. That's funny. But I I went through a pretty significant challenge. Yep. With a uh, pulmonary embolism, and and you and I we weren't on patient uh, basis at that time, and so we called you and you you helped me and. You know, I don't want to lose it. Yeah, because it was. It was. That's okay. I might too. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a, some really amazing times in there where I had totally lost all confidence. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about life not being fair, right? And a guy who's spiritual and loves the Lord, but was afraid to die, right? So that doesn't make any sense. And but I, I've, I've wanted to always ask you this question: How is it? I mean, you touched on it a little bit. When you see someone like myself come in and, you know, I'm hauling a, you know, 
an oxygen tank behind me. Right. And you just took me on as a patient. We knew each other from running. How did, how did you, what did you do? How did you compartmentalize or what did you do with someone like me? And you've had it before. Like you just said, you've had people pass and right. you've had people get sick. But not only were you so gracious, so very to the point of where, you know, there's hope for me. Right. But how do you, how do you do that? How do you see somebody that you know? Uh, Good question. Yeah, I, 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 the first thing I think is that I was blessed with is I've been doing this a long time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you learn. I've made a lot of mistakes with patients over the years. I mean, you know, I mean, there's the old joke. This is why we call it medical practice. practice. Right, right. You know, or you do things that you're maybe not a mistake, but you're like, man, I should have done this differently or right. I should have. Because you know, nothing's absolute. Because nothing's absolute. You know, I, I, I've been really blessed that I have, you know, take care of friends and other physicians and colleagues. And um, it does get tough. You, in some ways, have to learn to use part of your brain that is automatic. Um, And then, you know, where you're just focused on the medical stuff. But I think at some level, it's still, you take it home with you. I mean, you know, I mean, there's times, uh, you know, there's a, a guy who's a, uh, uh, he's on, he's on Twitter and he's a f- physician who's kind of a comedian and he sort of spoofs all the different specialties and his, I've fa- seen him. Yeah. Yeah. His, and his family medicine one, he's funny. Yeah. He's funny guy. Yeah. His family medicine one, you know, um, there's a medical student who walks in and you know, the, the medical student's like, are you okay? And the family practice doc's like, oh, I'm just having my daily cry. Um, <laughs> and I think every family practice doc is not just me. We're all, I mean, we're, we're in this because we care about our patients. We've, you know, I, I think one of the really awesome things for me now is I've known a lot of my patients 20, 25 years. Yeah. I mean, again, I mean, I kind of knew that's what I was going to be getting into, but only when you've done it for 20 or 25 years, you're like, yeah. oh my God, that, you know, had, had someone told me I was going to do that 20 years ago, I'd be like, no, you know. So again, that ultra comparison, like, yeah. you know, at the start of an ultra, you're not really thinking, you know, sometimes you have yep. to look back. So, yeah. so I think, you know, with your question, it's, I think I've had just a lot of really good experiences that have helped me try to figure out how to navigate those situations. And I just feel this is where I do feel blessed that I can help people. And, you know, we, again, the job's tough. I mean, insurance companies don't want to pay us. And, you know, the business side of stuff is getting tougher and tougher. But when we carve it down to that, we can be there to help somebody. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you go home saying, wow, I really helped this person. And that's, that's, you know, I, I mean, sometimes I, you know, we, we sort of laugh. We're like, sometimes I wish that wouldn't happen so we'd be more skeptical. But you get those good things like that where you can really help people, yeah. um, help people you love, help people that you know, you know help people in our community. And, yeah. and um, that's that's kind of why you do it. If Yeah, I mean, if you don't get a rush from that, you should be in research or do stuff. Yeah, like yeah. That's yeah. A, that is a great way to say it too. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, I got my hernia repaired. I've never seen that doctor ever again. Right. I don't live with that. Right. You, you see me throughout the year, right. all every year. Right. And so, but the one thing I did want to tell you is I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for trusting me. I mean, <laughs> no, it's, it's, and you know, we, we say this in, as physicians when we take care of each other, you know, I, I've had 
physicians contact me like you know will you, will you be my doctor and to me that's one of the oh god it, it's right and but vice versa you know when i've had some mental health problems and i had to go see a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist or you know i have to go talk to my friend you know a friend of mine who's a, my physician about my cholesterol um you know it, when i've gone to them and say are you willing to see me it's that same well, thank you for trusting us. Right. So it's a two-way thing. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. great. Yeah. I say this to just about everybody I meet. We talk about you. You saved my athletic life. Well, we're happy to get you back out. That's, <laughs> again, that's the fun part of the job. I mean, you know, when, when I, the hard part of the job is when you have people that don't want to, you know, um, at, we were talking with Jenny Capel about physical therapists. You know, yeah. the physical therapists are either prodding or rating. Right. You know, Rating's a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's, you yeah. know, I'm, I'll never forget the day you, you came in. It was shortly after my event, and you just said, you don't have any confidence in your body. Yeah. And that was the right words at the right time. It took me some years right. to figure it out. But it was like, oh, there, there is an answer. Like you said before, this is this is normal behavior. Right. You're not acting out of character or out of whatever. Right. This is completely normal. Right. And, and that's where the experience really comes in of having done this now in, in Nevada for 25 years. You know, I've seen other people go through a pulmonary embolism or you see people have some surgery or procedure and they're like, oh, I'm just not coming. And I'm like, we're good, you know, yeah. and, and, but it, it, but that's, that's also the feelings you were having were completely legitimate. Yeah. And, you know, sort of like we talked, I, I still think there's a chemical. It's yeah. not just a. I mean, I think when you get, especially with pulmonary embolisms, people get anxiety, you know, and I still think there's some chemical it's thing crazy. that just affects your brain in a way yeah. that's really weird. I do too. So yeah, I do. I thank you so much. There's, I mean, you and obviously the other support people, my, my ultra team, I yeah. should say as a, as you know, so, so much help, you know, John, John Trent and Brandon Day and all these amazing people around us. Yeah, no. And that's. You know, it, you, again, you talk about, like, why do we get involved with these things? Because you want to be around these people. I know. They're fun. They're so yeah, fun. Yeah, they're fun. Yeah. Like they're, and they're, they, we love to see everybody right. win. And they're, well, and, and that's, you know, we were sort of talking a little bit about different events. I mean, one of the things I love about music, we can all win. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. one of the things I love about Ultra Run, it's not, I started playing tennis a little bit. And I realized I like hitting the tennis ball. I don't like that win-lose thing you know i mean <laughs> i could play a really good match and lose and i'd you know and actually it was more the opposite sometimes i'd win and play a bad match and I'd, you know but I, there's something about ultra running that we can all win we yeah are, you know we are, we're all pulling for yeah. each other yeah you know it's it's yeah. really the only sport that i know of that no matter what if you dnf if you flame out right injury you get applauded Right. People applaud you. you. Right. And we, we just did Waldo. We were sort of near the back of the pack. I mean, we weren't the very last, but we were, and we had this group of people and we're all leapfrogging. That's 100K. Yeah, that was 100K. That was in August. We're all leapfrogging each other. We probably saw the same 10 people and everybody was pulling. I mean, it wasn't like, let me try to beat this person. It was like, hey, I'm going to go ahead, you know, try to keep up with me or let, you know, let's, or you'd pass someone and say, hey, let's go, you know, because we we're all, all of our goals was just to finish. That's and it right. was really cool at the finish line. Everybody stuck around like, yeah. yeah. And there was, yeah, it was just all positive. And that, Isn't I, that great? I got done with that race. My only regret is I didn't get a photo with Craig Thornley, but you know, other than that, <laughs> it was a great day. Yeah. Yep. 
Well, I, I can't tell you uh, how exciting this has been for me. I've been wanting to do this. I have one last question. Yep. And that is, what is your definition of success? I think success is just a feeling. I think you know when you've put in your best effort, when you've tried your hardest. I don't think success is necessarily a win or lose thing. I think it's, hey, this is the situation I've been given. I've tried as hard as I can. And I think if you, you know, when you put your head down in bed that night, if you kind of say, hey, I did everything I could, I tried my hardest. So to me, it's just, I tried everything I did. I've done everything I could, you know, I've taken advantage of everything I could take advantage of. You know, I, I know in the American culture, we like to make it a win or lose thing. Having watched the Michigan-Ohio State game, that was nice. <laughs> I'm not going to say winning's not bad. But no, I, I think that, that you can be incredibly successful without being famous or rich. Like I said, it's, you know, we were, we were talking a little bit about my, my days in high school band. I mean, one of my most prized possessions is a little trophy that's this big. I mean, it's tiny. And my mom's like, that one's important to you? I'm like... Yeah, because that that was the culmination of three years of high school in this little right. trophy. That right. wasn't that wasn't a weekend tennis tournament where I got some big right. trophy. That was three years of hard work and that's what that represents. And so that's kind of what success is for me. That's awesome. Is, yeah. I love that. Well, I just can't tell you how much how, how excited I am and thank you so much. This has been great. I so I'm so excited you were part of the project. Thank you, Ken. It's it's been fun listening to your podcast and I'm just honored that you've had me on. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andy, for your identity journey. It's not every day that you get to interview a tuba player, and this one did not disappoint. I love listening to Andy's journey on how he became a doctor and how the many people and mentors in his life contributed to his success in his medical practice. Thank you, Andy, for your passion and service as a medical director for Western States 100, the TRT Endurance Funds, and in our amazing state of Nevada. I loved Andy's response to the question of how he would encourage someone who was having trouble to use the metaphor of an ultra running race and how you have people that mark the course and man aid stations to help you navigate the course. They cheer you on. He said, so having those people in your life as markers and helpers is what you need. We don't run the race of life alone. And if you do, you're gonna be really tired. Such wise and incredible words. I am so excited for our future journeys together and the races and the things that we do together in the ultra running community. Thank you so much, Andy. This has been a a tremendous experience. Thank you for listening to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast with Ken Castroco. If you want more of this or want to learn more about my community, go to www.endurancelead.com. That's www.endurancelead.com. Make sure you hit the follow button so you don't miss another episode. Thank you for listening. And if you found this podcast inspiring, please leave a comment and share it with a friend.